Good afternoon, and welcome to Spokane Public Radio's Northwest Arts Review, a half hour exploring the people, places, and events forming the rich arts tapestry we enjoy here in the inland Northwest and our wider Intermountain Northwest region. I'm Jim Tavenin, pleased to be your guide on this journey. Today, we celebrate winners of Spokane Art's most recent round of grants as Chris Massini talks with Ponies in the Park author Mary Carpenter and illustrator Mary Pat Canale. And Vern Windham chats with Jennifer O'Bannon and Philip Baldwin of the Spokane Youth Symphony. Nathan Weinbender drops by to offer a reflection on actor Anthony Hopkins and his performance in the new film The Father, and we have music from both the Spokane Youth Symphony Orchestra and Eastern Washington University students. This is Northwest Arts Review. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Chris Massini. Joining me today are children's book author Mary Carpenter and illustrator Mary Pat Canale. They're recipients of the latest round of Spokane Arts Grant Awards, or SAGA. They've been awarded a grant which will support a project titled Ponies in the Park, which features the sculptures and history of Spokane's Riverfront Park. Mary and Mary Pat, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. So um, let's start first. Tell us a little bit about Ponies in the Park and where the idea came from for a children's book featuring Riverfront Park. Okay. Um, I moved here about seven years ago, and um, I had a daughter that was in third grade, and she was, they were learning about the area. Um, and so when, when I moved here, we were looking at things, um, exploring the area, going down to Riverfront Park, and um, we did a lot of reading about the carousel, and I fell in love with the history of the carousel, that um, Charles Luoff was commissioned to build the carousel, and that um, the person didn't end up paying him. When that happened, it became a wedding present for his daughter, Clara, and so it initially was in um, Natorium Park. But anyway, I thought that I thought the um, history was really unique, and um, I have always told stories. And so my daughter and I started telling stories about the carousel and the park and things coming to life. And so that's kind of how the the story of Ponies in the Park began. Yeah, and tell us a little bit more about the story. Who you know, who's the character in the book, and what happens as they explore the park. Yeah, so the story is about a little girl named Grace, and um, it's a story about how moonlight mixed with magic dust and a little girl's wish allows the carousel and the art in the park to come to life one night, and they have a magical adventure. And um, yeah, I can't tell too much more because <laughs> you got to read it to find the out. story away. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds magical. And Mary Pat, you're the illustrator to sort of bring those images to life, and I can gather from the title that the the horses and the other figures in the carousel play a prominent role, but what other structures and, and um, imagery from the park have you brought to life in your illustrations? Well, Chris, um, I'm just going to back it up a little. One of the things that Mary and I are doing, which is also part of the grant, is this is an ongoing process. 
that we are sharing on our website, which is www.poniesinthepark.com for teachers, readers, parents to follow along from the idea, Mary's idea of the story and the telling. And we're going to work with, um, have available for teachers um, and homeschooling to be able to follow the process from idea to generating and then actually printing this um, in, in a hardback form book, which we'll give to schools. That sounds like such a fun process and, and so neat that the public's going to be able to follow along as it develops rather than just sort of seeing it on the shelf. I'm talking with Mary Carpenter and Mary Pat Canali. They're um, artists and writers and illustrators um, of a new children's book called Ponies in the Park, which features the sculptures and history of Spokane's Riverfront Park. So, Mary Pat, tell me more about the imagery. So we got a little taste of the story. So what are you hoping to showcase in terms of the art and the the figures and, and sculptures that are in Riverfront Park? Well, Chris, it's been really fun. Mary and I just went down to the park and we went on a little adventure, got on some of the little lime scooters and went around and um, taking pictures from all different angles of the different sculptures. There's going to be the goat in there and uh, the giant wagon without, like Mary said, giving too much away. So uh, taking pictures from above, below, to the side, all as reference shots, and then leaning up against the wagon, you're trying to push it, what would that look like, and then getting, so all of the sculptures, the way they are, the horses, I do a lot of the sketching of that, and um, talking about the main character, what she is going to look like first, was it a he, a she, you know, all of those kind of things, so that's a lot of fun, and it's um, great to be able to work with a partner on that because some of the things we want to do is we're going to have some downloadable things tied to Common Core that are specifically first, second grade um, and kindergarten things that they do. Like what time is it in the clock and a whole, you know, kind of interactive thing they can work with with that. It's going to be exciting. So um, is this the first project that the two of you have collaborated on? How did you get um, linked up to make this book together? It is. We um Join, joining SCBWI, which is, what is it called? The Society, Society of Children's Books, Children's Writers, and Illustrators. Exactly. And so I, I joined that because I was looking for a local illustrator. I had emailed a couple that I had found, but um, none really fit exactly what I was picturing in my mind. And so when I looked on the website and was looking through some of the different illustrators, I specific picture um, of a little girl and a cat that Mary Pat had done. And it was exactly what I had pictured in my mind character was to look like. And so I was pretty excited. I reached out to her and one of our first conversations, we just really hit it off. And um, I enjoyed talking with her. She was very knowledgeable about, um, because of her, um, of her training as a teacher, as well as an illustrator and writer. Um, but she just took, I think our first conversation was about two hours, you know, <laughs> but she was wonderful just to take the time to talk. And I didn't at first approach her and told, tell her what I was looking at. I was just getting some advice, but I just loved how um, genuine she was and sharing and giving advice. And I just decided that this is definitely someone I wanted to work with. The website is www.poniesinthepark.com and people can follow along on the progress if they're really excited and want to see it right now. But um, if folks are just looking forward to actually having the book in their hands, any idea when that might be, what the timeline is for the project? 
we are on a tight, tight deadline and we did a timeline for the grant that was required. Um, the whole process of getting it ready, then getting it laid out in the specs for the printing, getting the proof back. We're hoping to get these the books around February or March to be able to bring out to, especially because second graders in Spokane start Spokane history. It used to be third and now it's second grade. And we would like to get those books out to them uh, we're working on right now an end page with a map in it of the park uh, with the pictures in there. Um, and that way then we can also present, I've written some other and illustrate books and present it in classrooms and kids love that. So hopefully we can do some uh, in virtual and some in person, but that was part of what I was so excited when Mary talked to me about this, that at the time, no one was in the classroom and we thought this is a great way if kids can actually, you know, to be able to, uh, to have a field trip virtually or, you know, go outside and be able to do something. And that's the other thing that I found exciting about the project is my, my hopes was to have something where it would allow people to have family time or time with friends and um, their children to be able to go down into the park and explore once they've read about them. Because I think that there's such a uh, we have such a beautiful park in Riverfront and some people that I've talked to have never even been down there. Some yeah. of my daughters when they first met there and I think it would be a unique way of allowing families to get out and explore the park and, park and have family time and bonding together. I've been talking with Mary Carpenter and Mary Pat Canali. They're collaborating on a new children's book called Ponies in the Park, which features the sculptures and history of Spokane's Riverfront Park, and they've just been awarded a Spokane Arts Grant Award to help support that project. Thanks so much to both of you for talking with me. Oh, it's been great, Chris. Thank you, Chris. For the past three months, we have welcomed Eastern Washington University student musicians for live sessions on KPBX's Piano Bench program each second Tuesday. A highlight of this week's performances came in the form of an instrument, the viola belonging to the late Kendall Feeney. Bequeathed to the university for use by select students, it is a living legacy of a great musician, teacher, and friend of KPBX. This is Kendall's instrument, played by Nicole Leach, joined by pianist Claire Wong, in one of Bohemian German composers Hans Zitz's album leaves.
Eastern Washington University students Nicole Leach and Claire Wong recorded in the KPBX studio. You can hear the entire Piano Bench session as a From the Studio podcast at spokanepublicradio.org. The Spokane Youth Symphony's history begins in 1949. Their website describes them as a teaching orchestra environment for young musicians in the Spokane area. Designed to provide the students with large group performance opportunities as well as chamber music experience, the Youth Orchestra program allows students to enhance their musical skills by interacting with other musicians of varying abilities and performing music they find challenging yet attainable. And now, the Youth Symphony is a recipient of a Spokane Arts Grant supporting their Christine J. Cooper Lesson Assistance Scholarship Program. Fern Wyndham talked with the Symphony's Executive Director, Jennifer O'Bannon, and Artistic Director, Philip Baldwin, about that grant. What are some of the financial implications for the students in the Youth Orchestra Program? Yeah, it is a financial investment for the families of students who are in a program like ours. Of course, a student needs an instrument to play, and in the beginning stages, renting or buying is, doesn't cost as much as, as when they move up with a more quality instrument. So instrument itself can be have cost to it that ha, you know is an investment. But then there's to be in our program, we have a tuition you know, that they're required to pay each year. We do have, and we have had for many years, tuition assistance, and we've had donors and uh, grantors who have given toward that. So we've been able to make tuition affordable for students who who need it, you know, who can't afford the full amount. So that's been good, but that is a, a financial requirement for families to to either pay or they can get assistance. The other big one is where we were regarding uh the expense of private lessons because for anyone who plays an instrument on the level that it it requires to participate beyond just a, a maybe a, a school program where which gives foundational you know preparation but for students who want to move ahead having that individual mentoring and and uh, private lessons is pretty crucial and as you know Vern you know all the students when you were directing the orchestra Nearly everybody in your orchestra would have private lessons on some level to be able to stay uh, up to the standard that they needed to be. And if they didn't have the lessons, they could fall behind pretty easily. And uh, so it was on my mind for a long time that 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 can be probably the most expensive aspect of being a young musician is those weekly lessons, paying a teacher, a quality teacher, to help them. And uh, so that has been an issue that... We didn't have a real good answer for for a long time how to help students whose families were struggling that way. And I saw that there would be a number of students who would come in our program and they would get in. We'd have the tuition assistance for them. But if they if the parents couldn't afford private lessons, it made it difficult for them to keep up with what they needed to be able to do skill-wise. And so that's what this uh, grant is helping with, uh, this program that we were able to initiate uh, about three years ago, actually put into effect more more like two years ago. 
It's called the Christine J. Cooper Lessons mm-hmm. Assistance Scholarship. Was that somebody or somebody's estate that helped get it going? Yes, and that was a really neat thing that happened. Christine Cooper is a woman who passed away about three years ago. I believe it was in April. And she had been a donor to our program prior to that. And I didn't know until her son called me and said that she had passed away. And they, the family knew that she really did uh, support what we were doing. And they felt like we would be a worthy organization to donate to. And so they, as a family, really wanted to help us in some way. And he asked what our needs were. And I I said, well, you know, I'd really like to see a grant to get something started for students who can't afford private lessons. And so that's how it started. And so it was named after his mother. And they, the family decided to get the program going. And um, her sons, uh, Ethan and Grayson Schaefer, uh, they and their family uh, gave us a, a sizable amount to get us started, but where we knew that over time we would need more funds to keep it going because it's something that's used every month to subsidize lessons for students and and in the beginning the getting families aware and getting private teachers aware you know it's kind of a slow process to start any brand new program but now it's picking up speed and become aware that our those funds would run out fairly soon so uh, along with some other support we got from another donor last year we've been able to keep going for a couple years but the saga grant is enabling us to keep moving ahead strongly and keep to growing the program to include more students and more private teachers Uh, so it did start uh, based on the family of christine cooper who wanted to honor her and her legacy uh, by things she really cared about. She had communicated to me the desire to help students get some instruction, so I knew private instruction meant something to her. That's how this all linked together. So we started it, you know, with the hope to keep getting funds to continue the program. Jennifer O'Bannon, the executive director of the Spokane Youth Symphonies. Philip Baldwin is the musical director of the organization, and he backed up the need for this new program. Well, private teachers are our lifeblood. Um, they are the people who are training these wonderful young musicians to play their instruments well. Um, especially as a string player, this is not something you get good at without a private instructor. Winds and brass have a little more advantage in the sense that they, they can do some self-teaching and we've got some wonderful um, programs around town. But it is, a, it is an instrument where you can get quite proficient without a teacher. But that, as I say, is not possible on string instruments. So this grant really makes it possible for many of our younger students to get lessons when they might not be able to afford them otherwise. I'm lamenting just a little bit. I'm seeing a drop in the number of students willing to start string instruments, and yet we have all these amazing teachers in town. So um, if you know of anybody who's looking to start a string instrument, the Youth Symphony Organization is a great place to explore that, and these, this new grant will help students study privately. And here is one of the Youth Symphony's most high-profile alumni, violinist Jason Moody, joining the orchestra in 2000 as soloist in a bit of Jean Sibelius's violin concerto. Vern Wyndham conducts. ¶¶ 
one of the most nominated movies at the upcoming Academy Awards, The Father is a harrowing and empathetic look at dementia. Nathan Weinbender takes a look at the acclaimed movie, now available as a digital rental, with a career-best performance from Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins has played every kind of character and embodied every conceivable countenance, from the demure serial killer Hannibal Lecter to the emotionally repressed butler in The Remains of the Day to real-life figures like John Quincy Adams and Richard Nixon and Pope Benedict. But it almost feels like his entire career has been building to his recently Oscar-nominated work in The Father. Maybe it's because his character is also named Anthony, a detail that was reportedly changed after Hopkins was cast. He's an elderly man living in a posh London apartment, and he seems like a revolving door of different personalities, sometimes cantankerous, sometimes spry and playful, other times forgetful and even a bit naive. That's because, we soon learn, Anthony has dementia, and his environment is always shifting around him, mercurial and confounding. The movie roots us firmly within Anthony's fractured mental space for most of its runtime, so that we experience his disorientation and confusion right along with him. The people in his life change identities seemingly at random. The view from his window, a recurring image throughout the film, is a little bit different every time he peers past the curtains. Even the geography of the apartment changes subtly, so that it sometimes seems much larger than it really is, making it easier to get lost in. Anthony's daughter Anne, played by Olivia Coleman, is obviously concerned. He's becoming more antagonistic and is quicker to anger, and he's driven away another in-home caregiver, accusing her yet again of stealing his beloved watch. Anne's husband Paul, played by Rufus Sewell, starts to resent his father-in-law, a rock in his shoe, a burden that steals away all their attention. Paul is not a villain, however, because illness can bring out our most turbulent emotions, fear, hopelessness, even resentment. We never quite get a handle on these characters' true intentions anyway, because they're in a near-constant state of metamorphosis, details about their lives forever in flux. Is Anne really married, or was she recently divorced? Does she live in town, or has she flown off to Paris? Sometimes Anne appears not as Olivia Coleman, but as Olivia Williams. Other times, Anthony comes upon a strange man, played by Mark Gaddis, lounging in the parlor, insistent that he lives there too. The premise of The Father has all the hallmarks of a noble melodrama, or one of those banal movies of the week that take the most conspicuous symptoms of a medical condition and hammer them into plots of histrionic highs and agonizing lows. What this film is instead is an incisive and unflinching examination of Anthony's illness, as well as a creeping, deeply sad horror film about disorientation and the loss of identity, about succumbing to a disease that robs you of the understanding that you have a disease in the first place. The Father is the debut feature from writer-director Florian Zeller, adapting his own 2012 stage play. It's a remarkably empathetic film, and the only other movie I can recall exploring this kind of material as effectively is Sarah Polly's Away From Her, which was about a decades-long marriage straining beneath the inevitability and intensity of Alzheimer's. Both movies are thoughtful and profound in the way they look for humanity in stories that cannot, by their very nature, have a happy end. The film indeed closes with a scene of tremendous power as we watch Anthony experience a burst of lucidity just long enough to understand the horrifying implications of his situation and then gradually drift away again. He seems to regress all the way back to childhood, stopping at all the sign points of his life along the way, while his adult cognitions try to take over and anger him back to reality. 
Hopkins exhibits an amazing control of his emotions and his physicality, and Zeller's camera never leaves his face. It's one of the most incredible scenes of Hopkins' storied career, and this is one of the best movies of the year. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Nathan Weinbender. Nathan Weinbender is film and music editor for The Inlander and a co-host of Spokane Public Radio's Movies 101, heard Friday evenings at 6.30 here on KPBX, the home station of this program, Northwest Arts Review. Thanks for listening to Northwest Arts Review. I'm Jim Tavenin. Help today came from Chris Massini and Vern Windham. Thanks as well to Mary Carpenter, Mary Pat Canale, Jennifer O'Bannon, Philip Baldwin, Claire Wong, Nicole Leach, and Nathan Weinbender. The Spokane Newt Symphony and solo violinist Jason Moody take us out with the close of the Jean Sibelius Violin Concerto. Please join us again next week for another Northwest Arts Review on Spokane Public Radio.